Well, good morning, everyone. How are you? Thank you for laughing at the goat, by the way. <laughs> you know, I saw that Sprint commercial. I said, yeah, we got to use that goat. That screaming goat is going to remind everyone not to show up on the 28th. Not everyone believed me. The 8.30 service, man, they were asleep. They had no idea what was happening with the goat, so <laughs> thanks. Um, so Christmas is just about here. I hope you can come back and join us on Christmas Eve. I, th- I, th- I do think it's going to be a great time together. A couple weeks ago... Uh, when we welcomed in the Advent season, if you recall, we looked at what the Apostle John wrote regarding the Incarnation and how in Jesus, deity took on flesh and dwelt among us. Why? John says, because God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. John said, that is the truth. I think it's safe to say that most people, um, most people like the idea of God loving the world. But the second half of John's statement where he says whoever believes has eternal life is for some um, uncomfortably exclusive, you know, the implication being that those who don't believe won't have it. Uh, Elsewhere in the New Testament, uh, in a letter John wrote to the early church, he asserts basically the same thing. At a time when um, some false teachers were going around uh, those, the early churches uh, saying bizarre stuff about Jesus and telling people how they had to keep all these religious rules and regulations in order to get to heaven and thus undermining the gospel of grace. Uh, John, as he writes, he references the incarnation. He says, listen, Jesus is God come in the flesh and belief in him is necessary. He reminded his listeners how as an apostle, he was close to Jesus, very close to him. He, he was a witness to Jesus's life, his miracles, his teaching, his death, burial, and resurrection. And so John says, there's a, there's a historical reality to Jesus and to his truth claims Uh, You have to accept and believe to be a Christian. In fact, John makes this declaration. He says, we are from God, and whoever knows God listens to us. But whoever is not from God does not listen to us. This is how we recognize the spirit of truth and the spirit of falsehood. And uh, that is a, you know, that's a pretty strong statement. Uh, Let me give you my Ray K summary. John says, the incarnation, you know, the good news of of Jesus, news of God's love and grace is, is absolutely true. And anyone who believes in it, and he believes it, believes it has a relationship with God, he says, listen to us, we have the truth. Now, in our culture today, even at Christmas, that kind of s- statement irritates some people who respond and say, that's the, see, that's the problem with you Christians. You believe in absolute truth. You claim that you have it. You claim that everybody should believe exactly what you believe and do whatever you do. You're just trying to impose your views on me and on my life. You know, if you're, you're trying to undermine my freedom. If you, want, if you want to be enslaved to your absolutes, fine. Don't try to enslave me. Everyone should be free to decide for themselves what is truth. A couple of years ago, I had the opportunity to speak at Northwestern University. Uh, I was invited to come and, and just share basic beliefs of Christianity, and um, several hundred students showed up at the event. But prior to it, uh, there was this buzz around campus with some students texting and blogging and writing editorials on how these Christians in this event, we're coming to try to impose our beliefs on everybody else and to take away their freedom. And that certainly wasn't the case. Um, and it was a kind of a, in many respects, a silly thing to, to say and think. And yet that's the kind of reaction we sometimes hear uh, from people. And it flows, it flows out of this overall cultural notion that absolute truth erodes freedom. Now, unfortunately, 24 years ago, Uh, the U.S. Supreme Court endorsed and really cemented in our collective mindset uh, this idea through a ruling in which they said, at the heart of liberty, at the heart of freedom, is the right to define one's own concept of existence. 
of the universe and of the mystery of human life. And here's the thing. As Thursday approaches, keep in mind, Christmas is ultimately about truth, right? The truth of the incarnation, the truth of Jesus, the truth of God's of, of good news of God's love and grace. But if we pause for a moment and consider the increasingly common reaction to the claims of biblical Christianity and to the cultural notion that absolute truth erodes freedom, how do we respond to that? How do, how are we what are we to say to that? And and really, how do we understand the relationship between truth and freedom, freedom and truth? And I've been thinking about that over the last couple of weeks and. It seems to me that in the context of the Advent season, we all need to acknowledge, first and foremost, that truth, truth is important, perhaps more than some people think. Uh, for the sake of clarity, let me just point out that when somebody says with all seriousness, there is no such thing as absolute truth, they are at that very moment asserting an absolute truth. Uh, in other words, the statement is self-refuting. For someone to say, I don't, I don't necessarily believe in absolute truth is a whole different matter, but refusing to believe in something doesn't negate its reality. I mean, you can say, I don't believe in gravity, but if you step off the roof of your house while you're putting on Christmas ornaments and Christmas lights, you're going to absolutely fall because gravity is absolutely true. Yet every day, people we know, people we love, people we respect, uh, very bright, intelligent people say these kind of things. Why? Because in a culture characterized by relativism. We are led to think that truth comes from freedom. And if you, if you have to comply with and or accept truth other than your own, uh, your freedom, well, your freedom is compromised. And so you don't have to accept someone else's truth, which, you know, on the surface sounds reasonable, but the logical and, and, and practical outplay of that is cultural chaos. In his book, After Virtue, well-known moral philosopher, Alistair McIntyre points out that in a secular culture where it is suggested that as human beings we are here by accident, the mere products of a, of a random naturalistic process with no design or meaning to our existence, he says there is no real way to define what is good or bad, right or wrong, false or true. He says that, you know, it, everything is just a matter of opinion. You, you might feel something is true, but you can't impose that on me. And therefore, McIntyre asserts that in a society that says we have no purpose and eliminates God, religion, and philosophy, people will never come to a consensus of what is true. And that society will tear itself apart arguing about it. And in some, in some ways, that's what we see happening around us. For example, this past September, well-known atheist Richard Dawkins provoked outrage among child protection agencies when, uh, during an interview with the Times Magazine, refused to condemn pedophilia. Why? Because he said, uh, Dawkins said, who is he to condemn others by his own standard of truth? There really is no absolute truth. And people were just, man, people were mad at him. Um, But to his defense, Dawkins was simply being consistent with his atheistic worldview that, in his words, In a universe of blind physical forces and genetic replication, some people are going to get hurt, other people are going to get lucky, and we won't find any rhyme or reason in it, nor any justice. There is no design, no purpose, no evil, and no good. Nothing but blind, pitiless indifference. Now, not not everyone will go to Dawkins' extreme, but still, there 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 is this in America. There is this overall uh, cultural aversion to the idea of truth. Now, where does that come from? Well, Michel Foucault was a 20th century French philosopher and social theorist who had a significant impact on Western thought and culture. And Foucault said, truth is a thing of this world. It is produced only by virtue of multiple forms of constraint. 
and it induces regular effects of power, which is really just a fancy philosophical way of saying all truth claims are power plays. That's what it's about. When anyone claims to have the truth, they're just trying to gain power over people and control behavior. Now, as Christians, our, our initial reaction to that idea is probably going to be negative, but perhaps we should, we should consider whether or not there's any credence to it in terms of how we treat others. You know, uh, Foucault was a student of German philosopher Nietzsche, who, uh, along with Karl Marx and Sigmund Freud, established what became known as the hermeneutic of suspicion. Uh, Nietzsche looks like a guy who would be suspicious of most everything, <laughs> just to me. Uh, but uh, what, did, what, did they, what do they mean by that? Well, for example, if you proposed a truth claim to Nietzsche, if you said, hey, man, everyone needs to support human rights and social justice in the world, he'd be suspicious of that. And Nietzsche would say, well, why are you proposing that? Because you love justice so much? Or because you just want power in dictating what others do? Or if you were to say, green energy is really the best for our planet, everyone should go green, Nietzsche would say, why do you want everyone to go green? Do you own stock in windmills? Or an electric car company? Are you going to make a lot of money, gain power and control over people? Or if you say, you know, everyone should obey what God says in Scripture to be right and true and good and healthy and best for us as human beings, Nietzsche would say, why? Because you love and trust and obey God so much? Or are you just trying to establish moral superiority and oppress and marginalize and control those who don't believe or behave like you? Now, you may wonder why, why I'm so interested in what Nietzsche would say about truth claims. I'm interested because, in a way, it's very similar to what Jesus said to the religious experts of his day. You know, they were going around telling people, you have to follow our religious rules and rituals and regulations in order to please God. And Jesus challenged that. He said, you know, your, your claims on truth are simply ways of establishing moral superiority, gaining power and control over people. You're enslaving them. You're burdening people. That's why Jesus said, come to me, you who are weary and burdened. I'll give you rest. And so I'm, I'm quite sure Jesus would agree that religious truth claims can be power plays. But to suggest all truth claims are power plays that erode freedom is misguided. And not only that, to say all truth claims are power plays is itself a truth claim and a power play. It's like, it's like when Freud claimed that all beliefs about God are psychological projections to deal with guilt and insecurity. Well, okay then, but what made Freud's claim and belief about God any less of a projection to deal with his guilt and his insecurity? You know what I'm saying? Uh, if, uh, if, if secular biologists say everything, everything your brain tells you about God, about life, about morality, about love, about right and wrong is just an evolved neurological function to help survival and pass on genetic code, well, then everything their brain tells them is the same thing. So why should I listen to them? What, what makes their opinion and their ideas, any, what they have any more credence than what I'm thinking or what I believe? See, here's the deal. Everybody makes truth claims. And... Everybody believes truth claims. And therefore, it's not making a truth claim per se that leads to oppression and a lack of freedom. It's what's in the claim that determines the outcome. So when the Apostle John, for example, claims that God so loved the world, he sent his son Jesus, the, the righteous one, as the atoning sacrifice for our sins, not only for ours, but for the sins of the whole world, he's saying this is, this is the truth, and here's why. Because in innocence, Jesus was crucified. With his last breath, he blessed his friends and his enemies and he prayed for their forgiveness. There was no greed. There was no oppression. There were no attempts at control, only love and grace. And John says, if you, if you embrace the truth of Jesus, it'll impact your life. But let's not be naive. I mean, truth claims can be used to destroy freedom. Yet here's the thing. There is no freedom without truth. Or as Jesus put it, only the truth will set you free. I got a call this week from my fishing buddy. We grew up together in New Jersey, and now he lives in Alabama. And 
he's big into fishing, man. I mean, he's, he's got the boat, all the gear, everything. And we were talking about it. He wants me to come down this spring. And I remember one, how one time he, he took his boat up this channel thinking that the water was deep enough uh, for the boat, not paying attention to his depth finder. And he ran the thing aground. And it took three boats three other boats to pull him off the sandbar. I was thinking about this, this, uh, thinking about that this week. You know, what happened? Well, when he did that, he miscalculated. He was out of touch with reality, with the truth of how deep the water was. If he had paid attention to the truth, he would have been free. Now, understand, this modern idea that you have to get away from truth to be free is foolish. It's the very opposite. Only by being in touch with, uh, uh, with truth and living in accordance with truth can you be free. Now, you may be thinking, well, that's no doubt the way it works in the physical boating realm, but not necessarily the way it is in the moral, spiritual realm. There you can live any way you want, do whatever you want. Really? Uh, I, I don't think so. I mean, let me tell you something. For example, if you live life only for money, just to, to make it, to have it, to spend it, to save it, your soul will shrivel up and die. And you'll, you'll be tempted to compromise your integrity. You'll, you'll destroy relationships. You'll ruin your health. And at the end of your life, your greed will leave you empty and wanting. And you will have run aground on the spiritual reality that the love of money is a root to all kinds of evil. That's the truth. See, freedom comes from recognizing and submitting to truth, not ignoring it or trying to get away from it. Truth is important. But... Freedom is complicated. Freedom is complicated. You know, when uh, the human rights organization Amnesty International celebrated its 50th anniversary, 50 um, uh, musicians and artists from around the country collaborated and wrote and performed a song that they were playing on the radio called Toast to Freedom. And one of the lines in the song, one of the main line in the song that gets repeated several times is, nobody's free until everybody's free. Nobody's free to everybody's free, which is a really nice sentiment. But I remember, I remember hearing the song and wondering if perhaps the problem for us in, a, in America is that we've oversimplified freedom. We tend to define it as the absence of restrictions, which is a limited and faulty definition. For example, in the context of Christianity in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul writes how we are free in Christ. He said it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. In other words, we are free from performance-oriented religion, free from the guilt of that, free from the, the, the discouragement of that. But he goes on, he says... Do not use your freedom to indulge the sinful nature. In other words, he says we're free, but we can't live just any way we want, do whatever we want. Why? Because arrogance, deceit, promiscuity, greed, hate, violence, those are things that they're not good. They're not right. They're not, they're not safe or healthy for us as human beings. And so our freedom is not without restrictions, but ultimately those restrictions enhance our freedom. You guys follow that? Uh, I had a birthday this week, and I, let me tell you something. The older I get, the more I realize I just can't keep eating whatever I want. It's a really depressing reality, but it's true. And, you know, if my doctor says to me, dude, you have got to, this is hypothetical, dude, you've got to, you've got to restrict your diet, man. You, you've got to apply some discipline to your life. You know, duct tape your mouth, whatever it takes. Cut back on the pizza and the cookies because here are your options. Do whatever you want, freely eat whatever you want, whenever you want, how much you want, and end up losing your health, or restrict your intake and experience an even greater freedom of good health and long life. You can't have it both ways. I think of our musicians on the stage this morning. At some point along the way, they made a decision to restrict some of their freedom to spend time practicing their instruments. And still, they have to, they have to give up certain things in order to rehearse 
and, and, and get better at playing the guitar, the bass, the drums, the keyboard, whatever. But those restrictions ultimately release them into a greater freedom of proficiency you know, because they can play and express themselves and, and help us worship God and do it, do it very well. In short, freedom is not the absence of restrictions, but neither is it simply the presence of restrictions. What do I mean? Well, think about it. As Americans, especially as parents, we love to tell our kids, you can be whatever you want to be in life. You can be whatever you want to be. But that's not exactly true, is it? If I have a 17-year-old son who's 5'1", 105 pounds soaking wet, dreaming of being an NFL defensive tackle, it's, it, you know, it's not going to matter uh, how much work or practice or discipline or restriction, restrictions he applies to life. He's never going to play in the NFL. See, freedom is neither the absence of restriction or the presence of restrictions. Freedom, freedom is the presence of the right restrictions, one, ones that guide us, protect us, and help us become the men and women God has created us to be. And when we surrender ourselves to those right restrictions, we're released into greater freedom. Does that make any sense? But again, it's like when I'm fishing with my buddy in Alabama. We catch a fish or bring it in the boat or pull it up on shore. A fish is no longer free. It's lost its freedom to move and to live. Why? Because it needs restriction. It needs the lake. It needs water. Uh, and in the water, it has strength and power to swim away to its aquatic freedom. Here's my point. There's complexity to freedom. And the greatest example of all is love, right? I mean, when you fall in love with someone, there's an incredible sense of joy and excitement and and it's thrilling and there's security and there's freedom in that. That's what I experienced in life. But after my wife Margie and I got married, uh, I remember coming home late one time and she says, well, where were you? And suddenly I realized my freedom to do whatever I wanted, whenever I wanted, to make unilateral decisions was gone. And over the years I've come to learn that true lasting freedoms of love can only be realized when you surrender yourself to the other person. The fact is, the more intimate a love relationship is, the less independent you can be. Now, here's where people start wigging out. And they'll say, well, okay, so you're telling me I've got to recognize and know the truth and surrender to the truth and the restrictions of the truth in order to experience richer, deeper freedom? Some f- folks will say, well, okay, I, get, I see where this is going. I see what's happening here. You're a pastor. This is a worship service. You're trying to get me to surrender myself to God. But I'm not buying in, man. I'm not doing it because I tried religion. I felt burdened by it, guilty by it, oppressed by it, controlled by it. Uh-uh. Here's the deal. If that's what you're thinking, then you've missed something critical. See, it's not only that truth is more important than you thought or freedom more complicated than you realize, but Jesus is more liberating than you know. Understand, the founders of all other religions have appeared on the historical scene and said, let me show you some truth so you can work hard, follow the rules as best you can, and hopefully, hopefully in the end, you'll find God. Jesus came and shattered the historical scene and said, I am God, come to find you. I am the truth, follow me. I I will set you free. Religious systems of rules and rituals and regulations won't do it. I will set you free. And if I set you free, you will be free indeed. In other words, Jesus' message of love and grace is different from all others. And not only that, for any love relationship to be healthy, there has to be mutual loss of independence. It can't just be a one-way deal. Both parties must say to the other, I will adjust for you. I will sacrifice for you. If only one person does all the giving and the sacrificing, while the other does all the demanding and the taking, the relationship is distorted, right? It gets oppressive. 
And sadly, a lot of people view a relationship with God that way as being inherently oppressive. They see it as a one-way deal, you know, because God is God. He's the creator. You know, he's got all the power. I've got to, I got to adjust to him. I've got to surrender to him. I've got to sacrifice for him. There's nowhere God could adjust to or serve me. That's the view of religion. It's what all religions teach except Christianity. Christianity alone asserts that in the most unexpected, unprecedented, and radical way, God lovingly, graciously adjusted to us. And Jesus' deity descended to us, surrendered himself for us. He was betrayed. He was exploited. He was oppressed, taken captive, abused, sacrificed. And Jesus, God gave up his freedom so we could be free forever. And that's what, that's what the Apostle John is getting at when he writes, this is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. In other words, it's because of God's adjustment, his arrival, his surrender, his sacrifice, his love, his grace, that we adjust and surrender and sacrifice and love him in return. And that's not oppressive. That's not oppressive. That's, that's what a good, healthy, loving relationship is all about. Listen, our culture is under the impression, a false impression, that truth comes from freedom. But Jesus said the opposite, that freedom, real freedom comes from the truth. And Christmas is all about truth, truth of of incarnation, the truth of Jesus, the truth of God's good news of love and grace offered to all people. And this truth, if embraced, will set you free. One of the best uh, contemporary and cultural reflections on Christmas that I've ever I've ever read was written by the late American journalist Harry Reasoner, who uh, one Christmas summed it all up quite nicely, I think. He said, the basis for this tremendous seasonal burst of gift buying and parties and near cultural hysteria is based on a quiet event that Christians believe and historians say happened long ago. You can say that in all societies there's always been a midwinter festival and that many of the trappings of our Christmas are almost violently pagan. But you come back to the central fact of the day and the quietness of Christmas morning and the birth of God on earth. He says it leaves you with only three ways of accepting Christmas. One is cynically, as a time to make money, endorse the making of it. The second is graciously, the appropriate attitude for non-Christians who wish their fellow citizens all the joys to which their faith entitles them. And the third, of course, is reverently. If this is the anniversary of the appearance of the Lord of the universe in the form of a helpless babe, it's a very important day indeed. It's a startling idea, of course. My guess is that the the story of a virgin selected by God to bear his son as a way of showing his love for humanity is not an idea that's been popular even with theologians. It's so revolutionary a thought that it probably could come only from a God who's beyond us. It has magnificent and poetic appeal. Almost nobody has seen God and almost nobody has any real idea of what he's like. And the fact is that among men, the idea of seeing God suddenly and standing in a bright light of his presence is not necessarily a comforting or appealing notion. But everyone has seen babies, and most people like them. So if God wanted to be loved as well as feared, he moved correctly. If he wanted to know his people as well as rule them, he moved correctly again, for a baby growing up learns all about people. And if God wanted to be intimately, uh, intimately part of humanity, he moved correctly again, for the experiences of birth and familyhood are life's most intimate and precious experiences. And then Reasoner ended with this. So it goes beyond logic. It's either falsehood or it's the truest thing in the world. The story of great innocence of God the baby. God in the form of man has such a dramatic shock toward the heart. If it is not true for Christians, then nothing is true. And I think he's spot on. And so my prayer for all of us this Christmas is that 
that we will come to know the truth of incarnation, the truth of Jesus, the truth of God's love and grace, and that we'll embrace, embrace that truth. And in embracing it, find, find rest and be free. Let's pray together, shall we? Our Father, in the context of, um, in the context of the season, uh, it's very easy for all of us to just race through life, uh, through the gift buying and the gift giving, through the, the parties, the food, uh, all that Christmas has become culturally for us. Um, it's, easy for, it's easy just to kind of breeze through it all without really engaging our minds. Uh, our hearts are filled with, with nostalgia and warm feelings uh, for family and friends, but we often forget to engage our minds and to consider what this is we are celebrating, the truth of it all, the truth of incarnation. Not that we have come looking for you, but you have come looking for us. The truth of Jesus, born in poverty, betrayed, suffering, dying, living the life that we could never live, dying the death we deserve to die, that we might, we might be free. Offering all this to us, not not as payment for our good works, but simply by grace. We're called only to embrace it. This is the truth of Christmas. And Father, I, I pray that each of us would, you know, think through what it is we believe as we move toward Christmas Eve and, and Christmas morning. And that we would we would come to recognize that something has happened to chase change the course of history. You have shown up. You have come to us. And so now we come to you to worship and tell you we love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.